So they're confined to their house. They've been told, don't come into the community. You can't eat, you can't drink. The community now has no water. The only water in the community is found in Qureshi's front yard. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's such a beautiful picture of of the world versus a life with Christ, the true fount. Yeah. And he says, uh, everyone's welcome. You can come and drink of this well. Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. And over the last few years, if you've been with us, uh, you've heard us talk about so many different things on this show, theology, church history, ministry, leadership, all these different types of topics. But one that we come back to over and over again is the work of the mission, the mission of Christianity, the mission that God has given us to go and to reach the world with the gospel, to to deliver people from darkness, to see people set free from their sin, and uh, live in in light of who Jesus Christ is. And and this is is a big deal to us, and so we talk about it quite frequently. Now, uh, if you have been watching, you might be familiar with the series of episodes that we've been doing called Unknown Missionaries, where we want to expose you to missionaries that don't often get talked about, people from history, that God used mightily and in really unique ways that often get glossed over or dismissed or, or, or maybe never even heard about. And so for these episodes, we have invited uh, Pastor James Fife, a missionary, a pastor over missions at Midtown Baptist Temple, and professor over missiology here at Living Faith Bible Institute uh, to teach us about these different characters uh, from history. And this week, we are going to introduce you to Pakistani evangelist Mahmoud Shah Qureshi, Uh, also known as the peanut butter man. And so this is going to be a very lively and fun conversation. And so with that, welcome James Fife. Good morning. Thanks Thanks, for Thanks for coming back, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a little while. It's been a little while. We've heard from a lot of people who have said they really enjoy these episodes, especially uh, missionaries who are on the foreign field will often reach out and say that they love these episodes, that they're a huge encouragement to them. So I'm I'm glad that we're we're doing this. Yeah, they're, Um, they're fun for me too. Just... You know, being a missionary, I love I love the life stories of other missionaries, especially the ones that don't get all the the, the press. Yeah, so it's fun. Very very few do get press. There mm-hmm. are, there are many many people who've who've given their lives, uh, sacrificed you know fame and and riches and uh, fleshly desires to take their families to places that no one else would go. So yeah, I think that this person in particular though probably um, really resonates with you. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the location for which he was doing ministry work. Will you explain right. that to us a little bit, just why this person is is, is relevant to who you are and, and the work that you did? Yeah, so the peanut butter man is not uh, you know, a traditional missionary like some of the other people we've looked at, like a George Grenfell or, a, or a Henry Knott going into a foreign land and planting churches and spending mm-hmm. his life there, right? He, he, he has a little bit different story, but it's a story that I've been wanting to share for a while because, as you mentioned, uh, he's, he's, uh, I guess tech, he's Pakistani and, mm-hmm. and that, you know, we'll talk about this, but he was born before Pakistan existed. Mm. Uh, so I guess technically he was Indian. He was born in India. Um, but he lived in the area where I worked. Mm. And so the people that I worked with in Pakistan know this man personally, he died before I got there. Um, but I do have, I feel like some personal ties to his stories and then to his, uh, his children and his grandchildren as well. And while you were there, you you heard like kind of 
by oral tradition, all the different stories about the peanut butter man and all the different ministry, you know, expeditions and and interactions and the the persecution. So all of this feels somewhat fresh to you, I I suppose. Yeah. And I ate his peanut butter. Literally his brand of peanut butter. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's like, yeah, he he made peanut butter and it, it still was going on. So, and so who is eating peanut butter, by the way, in Pakistan? Is it mainly just the expats and the missionaries and the Americans that are there? Or do people in Pakistan actually enjoy peanut butter? I think it, it was definitely introduced by the foreigners. It mm-hmm. was definitely introduced by the missionaries. That, that part of his story comes later on in his life. But uh, a missionary comes to his house uh, for a tea time and brings his own personal jar of peanut butter and starts spreading it on biscuits and and, and bread. And, and, and Qureshi becomes known as the peanut butter man. It's like, what on earth is that? And uh, yeah, so he found his market with the foreigners primarily. So he had two conversions. One, his salvation. To Christ. But then second, to, to peanut butter. To the gospel of peanut butter. Peanut butter's so good. It goes, yeah. I mean, it's hard to believe that you could live as long as he did without peanut butter. Man. Okay, let's let's get into it. Who yeah. was Qureshi? Who was this guy? And uh, you know, what was his upbringing like? Sure. And tell us about just his childhood and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so he was born in 1917 in what at the time was Northwest India uh, and is now currently, uh, as I mentioned, Pakistan. But uh, he was born in a small village called uh, Pin Sultani. He was the son of an imam, which is the, the, the Muslim uh, religious leader, the cleric for that area. So uh, his father was fairly popular, a well-known guy, had a lot of influence. Um, it was a Muslim-dominated uh, part of India at that time. Uh, so in his village, uh, you know, his father was the the imam, but he also traveled around and had this kind of uh, circuit riding mm-hmm. type of um, imam responsibilities. So yeah. he was known all over the place. He had uh, quite extensive influence. And so strict Muslim family, uh, which means uh, all of the, the typical traditions when, when a baby is born, the first thing that they will hear would be uh, a Muslim imam has to say the shahada into their into their ears. Mm. And, you know, they take it as far as the, to say that uh, a baby can't eat or do anything until they've actually heard had the shahada speak, spoken to them. Wow. Which, yeah, can become interesting if you don't have someone right there on hand. Um, so anyway, that's that's where he was brought up. So the expectation, naturally, is that he would become the next imam. Uh, the greatest gift that uh, a Muslim father has is a son. Um, mm-hmm. Sons are, are valued over everything else in the world, in, including daughters, uh, unfortunately, uh, especially if you're a daughter. So that was a, the expectation, was that he would grow up and take his father's place. He was uh, a bit of a uh, a wild child, as a lot of boys are. Mm-hmm. Uh, found himself in trouble in in small ways and then large ways as well. Ended up in prison uh, in his teenage years, and then ended up going to the military. Uh, ended up in prison again, and then in the military. Um, as a young man, he was also very hot headed. He mm-hmm. had a, he had a very short fuse, aggressive temper. So he would he would get out of control and, and that would cost him a lot. Um, so he, yeah, he ended up getting... Uh, I bet that didn't go over real well though. With his dad, I mean, with oh, the position that yeah. his dad had, I, I imagine that also looked bad on the family name. It did. And, and, and an interesting part of that uh, 
you know, religious community, but also that part of the world is the role of, uh, of honor mm-hmm. in a culture, which uh, I think the, extre- the, yeah, the extreme version of honor is hard for us to understand because in a culture where honor trumps everything with honors, the highest value, um, then, then nothing else matters, including human life, including the truth, including everything else falls subservient to honor. Mm. And so that's the reality there. And anything that a child does, especially a firstborn son would bring great honor or dishonor to the family. So this was a difficult thing for his father. Absolutely. So he was a, he was kind of a rebel to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is a certain kind of Islam, you know, um, you know, I think it's important for us to kind of define the type of, of Mm -hmm. Islamic heritage he came up in. It wasn't very liberal. It was very conservative. And so his responsibilities as, you know, in terms of the heritage of the imam Mm -hmm. was a really big deal. They're holding him to pretty high standards. Right. Yeah. Conservative, conservative Sunni uh, upbringing. Sunnis are the majority in most Islamic countries. Mm -hmm. Um, They, they hold to uh, the Quran and and then a a couple, you know, stories of Muhammad, life books of Muhammad for their, their holy books. There's other versions of of Islam, like there is in Christianity Mm -hmm. that that would have, you know, various beliefs in terms of maybe spirits and and maybe spiritual guides and and bigger roles of, uh, of, of the spiritual world and and communications there. But yeah, this was a, a more traditional, very strict, um, with high expectations on him to follow in his father's footsteps. So he, and he does, I mean, eventually he gets to the position that, that they expect for him. So he does, he, he, he does become that, that person, but there's an interesting story that gets him there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's, he is doing it, what any Muslim would, and he's learning and memorizing the Quran in Arabic, which is not his native language. Um, because the Quran can only properly be read in, in Arabic. Yeah. So, uh, and, and he starts wrestling, he starts asking just real questions. You know, he was also, uh, um, maybe more of a thinker, uh, than some of his peers. And so he started asking questions about, uh, just things that he would, he would learn about Islam and how they related to life. And ultimately, uh, in short, he became an atheist. He actually decided that that there was no truth in Islam, that there was no truth in the Quran, and he abandoned that. And this is even before he took this position, before he took his father's role. Wow. And so this was the first time that he became an outcast in his life. Um, a lot of the community were were putting a lot of pressure on the father to straighten his son out. So they like knew he, of his atheism. He was public about he it. He was public about it. He was challenging, you know, other Muslims. He was asking them to, you know, to to prove to him that God exists and and prove that that Allah is, is, is you know, a, a, a real presence in your life, those kind mm. of questions, and nobody could. And so, yeah, he, he was um, already being outcast by the, by the Muslim uh, community. Um, and then, you know, it goes as far uh, as, 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 you know, him being kind of warned, like, you better straighten up or you're going to be put out of the community. So, mm. so he does. Uh, and mostly because, uh, of his father's begging, his father ends up dying rather suddenly and unexpectedly. Mm. And it was that, that, you know, convinced him maybe, or, or made him decide he needed to take up the mantle of his father, even though in his heart, he was still an atheist. Yeah. But he was going to own the heritage. There was mm-hmm. the honor issue, right? Was yes was very pressing. And so out of honor, he was willing to fill the role. Right. And so that trumped even his personal convictions and, mm-hmm. and what he believed. So he took the role uh, and he, he actually knew a lot about the Quran. He was, he was 
also quite well respected because he'd been brought up under his father. He'd memorized a lot of the Quran. Uh, you know, he knew how to give some some of the standard answers to people's questions. Mm -hmm. So he took the role. Uh, he starts traveling around. He does the thing that his father was doing. He takes over the same kind of responsibilities and area. And and apparently by that time in his life, he's a he's a young adult. And 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 once he put on the the religious garb, he looked just like his father. Hmm. You know, he would show up in these cities and people thought that his father had been resurrected from the dead. He would wow. say, no, I'm, I'm his son. I'm, I'm, I'm Mahmoud and, hmm. and my father's dead, but I'm, I'm the new imam. So he does this for a while. He's living this life and, and really never believes it. And then just one day decides that that's it. I'm done. And like overnight, he just, he just quits being the imam. They were raising money to build a new mosque. And he, you know, as, as imam, he was treasurer as well. So he's holding the books. He's holding all the money. He just quits. He hands it all over to another guy and says, I'm out of here. Mm. And he goes home. Uh, and, you know, word gets around that he's, he's quit. And he's again living as an atheist. And again, he's challenging uh, people to, to leave Islam, to prove to him that there is a God. And this is where the, the persecution first starts to kind of ramp up, or at least the isolation. Now yeah. the, the new imams are, are telling everybody that he needs to be cut off, that he's lost his mind. And they're telling him, they're telling the community he's demon possessed. He's lost his mind, those wow. kind of things. So he became an outcast overnight. Mm -hmm. At this point in, in, the history of Pakistan, had there been a whole lot of missionaries? Had there been a whole lot of Christianity um, you know, penetrating this part of the world, because I know he encounters eventually encounters some missionaries. Mm -hmm. um, tell tell us about about what Pakistan is like, mm -hmm. and then explain to us uh, how it is that he first encounters the gospel or the Bible. So at this time, there still isn't a Pakistan. He's in his um, early mid twenties now, so we're into the nineteen thirties. Pakistan becomes a nation in nineteen forty seven, so we're still removed from that. So there are missionaries in India, though. Mm -hmm. You know, India had been um, hit with the gospel for, you know, a couple hundred yeah. years by then. Um, and even in his area, there okay. are, are also missionaries. So and two interesting things happen. One, his very best friend, who is a Muslim, told him, hey, for my sake, would you start going to prayer uh, for the sake of our friendship? Would you start going to the mosque and going to prayer and start? Would you try reading the Quran in our language? Mm. And so for the sake of the friendship, uh, Qureshi, the peanut butter man, agrees to this. Now he starts he starts going to mosque, but he doesn't believe in it. He starts he actually reads the Quran in his language, and as he starts reading the Quran in his language and starts understanding it, it actually produces more questions for him. He starts realizing how much the Quran number one talks about Jesus, which he he didn't realize mm. because typically he'd been told that everything you know that Christians believe about Jesus is wrong. Yet Jesus is a, a primary character in the Quran, mm -hmm. and. And, uh, you know, so this actually reading the Quran caused him to question Islam even more. And this is a fairly common um, component of a, the testimony of, of Muslims who, who do leave the faith is, is when they actually start paying attention to their holy scripture. Uh, they have a hard time reconciling the things that are found there. Mm. So that was component one. Component two is that missionaries were coming through his, his village. And so he started getting contact with some American missionaries um, that that would that left him a Bible and it started evangelizing in the area, and so he had new influences coming in and telling him um, things that he'd never heard about Christians and what they actually believed. Mm. Right. So one of the tactics of Satan is is always to to twist the truth. From the very beginning, he was doing that. And so in Islam, one of the common practices is 
to to misrepresent what Christians actually believe. Yeah. So it's easier to hate and it's easier to despise sure. their their yeah. so-called beliefs. Right. So so he's learning what Christians believe. He goes, well, well, that's not at all what I've been taught. And so once he hears that, that again frustrates him with mm-hmm. with Islam even more. Um, but sets him on this journey where he's both starting to dive into the Quran, um, not because he believes it, because he's realizing more and more this can't be true. And he starts reading the Bible in parallel. And he comes to the conclusion just from the readings that only one of these books can be true. Yeah. Because they don't say the same thing. Right. So he didn't have a coexist bumper sticker uh, on, his no. mo- on his motorbike? <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't have those. Um, yeah. And, you know, they had the opposite at that yeah. time. In fact, that's what's going to drive Pakistan to becoming a nation in right. just a few more years. They get more and more entrenched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, at this point, you know, we've kind of, he's been exposed to the gospel. He's been exposed to the Bible mm-hmm. and he's between two straights, you know, he's got to make a, a decision. Either he remains atheistic mm-hmm. in his view um, or he, you know, repents and turns back to Islam or he discovers Christ for, for who he really is. Mm-hmm. And so um, how, how does this happen in his life? What is his, what is his conversion like? Yeah, it was mostly driven by his, his reading of scripture and, and praying. He started praying and asking that God would show him the truth. Uh, he realized that only one of these books could be true, and he wanted to know what it was. There wasn't a missionary that lived in his village at that time, but a missionary who would come through. And mm. every time the missionary came through, uh, he would sit down with him, and 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 the missionary would answer the questions for him. And 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 ultimately, through really his his desire for truth and his and his prayer to a God that he did not yet know, just show me truth and the reading of the word. And then, uh, the, the words of the, the missionary evangelist, he, he decided that the Bible is absolutely true and everything it says about Christ and my sin and a redeemer is absolutely true. And so he, uh, actually in, in his home, uh, on his own one day after reading the Bible, he had met with the missionary. He, he prayed and accepted Christ as a savior. And I think this, you know, if we're going to pull some principles out uh, from from Qureshi's life, mm-hmm. we often talk about uh, evangelism through discovering God's word, mm-hmm. right? So we we around here often talk about the idea of an open Bible is the most effective form of evangelism, mm-hmm. and and historically Christians have many different ways of presenting the gospel, some very confrontational, some Mm -hmm. momentary. But the idea that if someone gets the Bible in their hand and they're inquisitive, they're willing to ask questions, they're willing to explore, Mm -hmm. um, that the likelihood of coming to Christ and discovering who Jesus really is just exponentially increases. Mm -hmm. And so in a place like India slash Pakistan at this time, there had been no question asking, right? Like it was part of their culture and right. their tradition to not ask questions. Yeah. But because Qureshi was willing to, we would refer to him as a, as like a, a man of peace, right? Right. For these missionaries to find him and then to sit down and have these conversations, let him ask his questions. Mm-hmm. That's a really big deal. Will you explain this idea of, of conceptually, the man of peace, and mm-hmm. then also the importance of just letting the Bible answer our questions, mm-hmm. like that it stands the test of time and it stands even... It stands uh, against, you know, our hardest, most difficult questions. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of a man of peace uh, is rooted in in God's will that all would be saved. And so God is, um, you know, desiring 
the souls of, of all to come to redemption. And, and that there are people throughout the world that are um, sensitive to the work that God is doing. So God initiates, God is, is speaking, God is calling, God is drawing, um, just as he did to you or me. You know, mm -hmm. I grew up in a Christian home, Christian family, but there was a time where I realized that God was starting to speak to me and he softened my heart. We call him a man of peace, uh, and typically we apply that into areas like Pakistan, where we don't typically think of peace. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are people that are like, you know, the, he's a bit of a, a conundrum because he was such a violent and temperamental man. His wife would not have called him a man of peace because she suffered at the end of his boot or the end of his fist, you know. Which was which is common. Which in, was common, yeah, yeah. and maybe may a, a little more extreme in that house in particular, but common, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, yet God was softening his heart to be peaceful towards truth. Mm -hmm. So he was not yet peaceful towards all men, yeah. uh, but he was willing to consider the things that, that, that God has, has left for us. Mm. And so, yeah, when the missionaries came, uh, they found a, a hard man with a soft, uh, hard outside, but he had a soft inside, mm -hmm. uh, a willingness to at least listen and consider. Yeah. And so, um, you know, oftentimes in missions, he's, this man of peace would be the kind of the, the genesis of, of a movement. That would be where we would begin. We'll work with the ones that, that, are, that are wanting to hear. They get saved, and then uh, that becomes your, your first disciple, and, and then you start training them. Yeah. And, you know, we use, there's a lot of characters in Scripture that we could refer to mm -hmm. as, as like these people of peace. Lydia is a great mm -hmm. example of a person of peace. She's the first entry point into Macedonia. Mm -hmm. And that's by her conversion that eventually that, that region comes to establish a church yep. and, and there's momentum that comes from, from her salvation right. and her, and her influence. And in many ways, Qureshi was kind of that mm -hmm. central, you know, figurehead of the community, though he was an outcast. Mm -hmm. um, he, he became a person that had a lot of influence and, mm -hmm. and had a voice and, and people were willing to listen to even if they disagreed. Yeah, yeah, that's a great comparison. Or, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch was mm -hmm. very much like Qureshi. He's reading scripture and going, I really don't know what yeah. this says. Could somebody come and just show me? And so right. God sent, uh, you know, Russ Irwin, who, who authors the book, uh, the Daltons, some other missionaries that came through and, and, and were able to play that role and say, this is what scripture says. So what does his denunciation, his full denunciation of, of Islam look like? And then what does it look like for him to actually um, profess Christ openly mm -hmm. in that community? Which, you know, again, another thing that we'd be worth talking about is it's not common for someone who gets saved out of Islam to be open, especially immediately, right? right. Like there's, there's yeah. repercussions that people are trying to avoid. Maybe explain that mm -hmm. and then discuss how Qureshi kind of fearlessly talked about his faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, prior to his, his conversion, he'd already been shunned. He, he's got this just, uh, God just built him with this attitude of uh, a bit of rebellion in him. So leaving Islam wasn't difficult once he became a Christian because he'd already left Islam. Mm -hmm. You know, he was going to the mosque, but that was just for his friend. Uh, but his, initially he struggled with how to tell everyone that he was now a Christian going from an atheist to a Christian, uh, and especially even in his home. Uh, by this time he's married, he's actually been married twice. His first wife had, had, had died and he's got a second wife and he's got uh, kids and, and he's, mm. you know, he's got a family going. Um, so he wrestled with that. And he talks about how, how he wrestled with, 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 you know, identifying as a Christian. And then he just realized that 
through the reading of the scripture and the work of the spirit in his life is that how could you not, you have to, you just have to identify with me. I'm identifying with you. Mm -hmm. uh, you should identify with me Yeah, type of a thing. And so he, he, so he decided that he needed to start evangelizing and logically to him, uh, you had to start with the Muslims because they didn't know Christ. There were by this time, a few other Christians that he knew of, um, in surrounding villages, um, but he was really the only one in his village. So he just started evangelizing. He, he just became bold. He started telling everybody that he's a Christian. He started inviting people to read scripture with him. And, and of course the community shunned him and now to at a higher level than ever before he, he's starting to face persecution. Um, but probably one of the, the biggest changes in his life was the work of the Holy spirit, uh, to actually turn him into a man of peace. So the first fruit of his own uh, evangelism was his wife. She saw him uh, change. He stopped abusing her. He, he stopped lashing out at the children. And she saw a change in him. And eventually he started sharing the gospel with her. And, and she put her faith in Christ. Wow. And then the children as well. Yeah, so that's a great 1 Corinthians 7 moment mm -hmm. where it's like, if you're living if you're living the gospel, if it's actually transformative the way it should be, mm -hmm. it will... Uh, you know, by default, impact your home and impact your family. And, right. and there's a lot of hope in just living out, you know, what Christ asked us to be. Yeah. Yeah. So then the, you know, so then the, the, the shunning starts, you'd asked about what does that look like? Um, so the imam who's now in charge makes a declaration that, that this family uh, cannot interact with the community at any level. They can, you cannot, as a Muslim, you cannot sell to them. So they can't buy food. They cannot come to the, the community uh, well. They cannot get water. Uh, mm. if, if they are, it, it gets so bad that there's a declaration, if anyone sees them in public, you should kill them and, and you'll be blessed by Allah if you kill them. So essentially they, they now as a family are trapped in their home without access to food and without access to water. It's very quickly where it, where it gets to. Yeah. You can't live that way very long. No, you can't live that way very long. Um, but but God, is, of course, is at work uh, as He always is. Uh, this has been you know some months before this happened, and you know Qureshi's testimony in the community has impacted, interestingly enough, primarily the women. And, and, and you know a lot of times these communities are, are segregated by the sexes. There's not mm -hmm. a whole lot of an overlap um, between you know any woman that's not your family. Yeah. But uh, Muslim women would come at night and sneak out and bring food to the Qureshi house mm. um, because they, had, they, were, they were seeing his testimony and, and believing and, and understanding the things that he said and seeing a changed life. So they're being fed um, that way. Uh, the, the imam goes on uh, to say, uh, you know, that uh, I mentioned that they shouldn't drink water. So um, Qureshi decides that they need to drill their own well. Mm -hmm. And uh, a guy comes along, actually a Hindu guy, and, and digs a well for him for free. God, God's just using all kinds of, of other people now to, you know, to take care of his people. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, I, I do find that funny that that uh, the imam says, "Don't these people can't eat? Don't sell to them." Yet then it's the Muslim women who are supporting this family. So right. God's using the resources from the enemy to come over and support them. So they don't have to pay for their food anymore. Right. In a way, it's a blessing. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just getting food delivered to them at night. It's like Uber Eats is showing up <laughs> every night and these women undercover yeah. uh, bringing food. So anyway, they drill their own well. And so mm -hmm. now they've got their own water source. Uh, and, and according to, to Qureshi, it's the best water he's ever tasted. 
uh, take that for what it's worth. Right. The village uh, well dries up. So they're confined to their house. They've been told, don't come into the community. You can't eat. You can't drink. The community now has no water. The only water in the community is found in Qureshi's front yard. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's, it's such a beautiful picture of, yes. of the world versus a life with Christ, the true fount. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something, you know, that, that it's God's sense of humor. It's the mm -hmm. way God works. Because so Qureshi opens his door. And he says, uh, everyone's welcome. You can come and drink of this well anytime you want. So now, you know, the Muslim community has to come. Uh, Shamefacedly. In, in, a, in an honor cu culture, this is a big deal, yeah, to yeah. get water from the Christian. Um, but, you know, he had, by that time, uh, he'd read John. Uh, he'd read Matthew. He's heard about, you know, Jesus's declarations of being the, the water of life and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and Jesus, you know, loving his enemies. And, and so he's doing it. Wow. Yeah. The subtle persecution, it manifests itself many different ways. I mean, mm -hmm. I think, it, you know, part of the, the story is that people would, would dump manure into his yard, mm -hmm. like, or just throwing it over. Cause in, in these, these are walled off, off homes. Yes. And in places in India, it's very common for, for a home to be walled off mm -hmm. um, from the street and et cetera. You know, we have fences, they have walls, yeah. but people would just throw manure over. Is that yeah. right? That was one of the things that the Imam courage, encouraged everyone in the community to do. If you're ever walking by their house, just throw manure into their yard. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they would just randomly get rocks and manure tossed over the wall into their, into their and yard. And then kind of there was a the children with the graffiti as well. Yeah. So one thing that, that Qureshi did is that he um, put up a stone on the front of his house. It would have been symbolically the cornerstone and he wrote Christ house on it. Mm. So he titled his own house, the, the Christ house. And uh, so then the Imam also said, well, I want you guys to make banners and put them up on the wall saying that he is a heretic. You know, he, he should, he's worthy of death. All of these really intense things. And the local elementary school, the teacher taught the kids how to make banners. And as a, an art project, I guess, it's something you'd be into. <laughs> right, yeah. They're making these Sounds banners like that say, kill, the, you know, kill the, the heretic. And then they take a field trip to his house, these little kids, and they're putting them on the walls that surround his house. And so this is, this is the, the level of indoctrination and the depths of mm -hmm. the depravity of just wicked religion, where you've got little kids for an art project, threatening the life uh, of someone who, who has followed a different uh, belief. It's so wild. Yeah. The, the physical threats were um, there too. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there was some actual threats on his family's life and on his life. Can, mm -hmm. you, t can you tell us about those stories of, of persecution and really um, the, just how God came through in a very yeah. difficult situation? Yeah. So on a couple occasions there were the, you know, the, the imam would get people riled up and, and then men would take it upon themselves to go and, and gain favor with, with Allah and with their local imam. Mm -hmm. Specifically, there were a couple men that had come and decided they were going to go and deal with Qureshi, meaning they're probably going to go and beat him to death. Uh, one guy grabbed three friends and they're on their way over to Qureshi's house to, to, to rip down his, his Christ house sign and tear down his walls and go after him. And, mm. and they stop along the road uh, to get uh, some juice. There's a little vendor that's selling juice. These guys could buy juice and like four other guys jump in and get juice too. And, and the vendor assumes that they're all together mm. and he tries to charge them for eight juices. This guy's like, I'm not paying. They're not my guys. Right. Mm -hmm. And so a fight breaks out. 
uh, and in the midst of it, the you know this guy who's on his way to to attack Qureshi uh, ends up attacking the vendor, injuring him seriously, and, and then he's on the run. You know, a similar story happened with another guy who wanted to kill Qureshi. Uh, he he had to go do a day's work first, and as he goes, he ends up getting in a fight. It actually hits the guy in the head with an axe and, and and kills the man, and then ends up killing his wife as well. Oh my gosh! So you know, it's it's like it's it's awful. You know, the it's an awful story, but it it, it reminded me of Pharaoh when men mm-hmm. have already decided to harden their hearts. That God will say, "Well, fine," you know, like Romans one, then I'll just give you up. Yeah. I'll give you over to what your heart already wants. And these men who are hardened already against God, well, he just allowed them to continually be hardened and, and their, their wickedness spilled out. And, you know, both of these men were, were now on the run from mm. the police. So, so twice in that way, God miraculously intervened just through the wickedness of men to, to, to allow them to be more wicked, I guess. Yeah, the repercussions yeah. of their own yeah. hardness. So Qureshi put uh, Psalm 37, 1 up on his wall. It said, fret not thyself because of evil doers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Mm-hmm. And that was his mindset, that God is going to take care of him. There's no need to fret about this. He also put Psalm 37, 3. I think that was one of his maybe key Psalms for him, but it said, trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. A bold verse to put on your wall mm-hmm. in front of Muslims. But that, mi- that mindset really begins to impact his family, yeah. and their faith is increased as well. Especially in the midst of, in the midst of this persecution, um, that 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 faith is seen and is visible mm-hmm. in their own lives. Yeah. So his family, his wife, and and children end up giving their life to Christ. Um, and he, so he's got a few daughters and then he eventually has a son as well. And uh, one day the imam again gets riled up and grabs a mob and they're going to Qureshi's house to just to burn them uh, alive in the house. And Qureshi had actually left to do some work. So he left uh, at night and was in another city. Uh, and so it's just the wife and kids there. And, and they come to the house, they, they douse it in kerosene. And as they're preparing to, to light it on fire inside the house, the wife is sitting with their children uh, and, and asks the children, are you guys ready to meet the Lord? Because mm. uh, today will be our last day. And, uh, you know, children as young as, you know, six or seven are saying, yes, mom, I'll see you in heaven. Mm. You know, so what a hard conversation, uh, but what a what an example of faith. Um and how his life impacted, you know, his families. And so, you know, there's a number of times too in Qureshi's life where there's these uh, supernatural interventions, not just, you know, that angry men are being angry men, but in this case, it, it said as they, they've doused the house and they're getting ready to light it, that a voice comes out of the mob and uh, just loud, um, clear for everyone to hear and says, do not... Um, attack this man. He is a righteous man. Something to that effect. Do, mm-hmm. You know, do not do this. He's a righteous man. And everybody could hear this voice, but they didn't really know where it was coming. from. And they from. didn't know where it came from. And even you know, the Muslim community decided that God had spoken. Hmm. You know, this was the the takeaway that they all they all thought that God is on this guy's side, and so they left. Um, there's actually a couple stories of a mob coming to burn down his house. Another one where Qureshi was there himself, and they decided to put their kids to bed because they they figured. Hopefully they can die in their sleep would be better than facing the flames. Mm. Uh, so on a couple of occasions, yeah, they faced um, being burnt alive and, and every time God intervened and, and it never happened. That's amazing. And 
I think it's important because <clears throat> hearing this part of the story, I think, you know, and this is common in all these missionary stories that we've been going through is that there is a moment where you, you, counted the cost mm -hmm. before previously you you've already worked through the potential problems that you're going to face mm -hmm. you never really know how they're going to manifest themselves but but then the moment comes and time and time again christians who have counted the cost who recognize the value of christ the the value of the work mm -hmm. um they stand fast in the in the midst yeah. of moments like this where there should be in the flesh, dread and doubt and fear right. and and uh, recanting, but there isn't. That mm -hmm. they they stick with God. They stay with the Lord. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. Hi, my name is John Scott. I go to Northside Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm an LFBI student. LFBI is spectacular. It's an institute that is taught by pastors as opposed to professors, people who are actually in the ministry with their feet on the ground, in the dirt, making disciples, evangelizing, and actually loving people. And it's the best resource out there for any sort of Bible teaching. In my life, I've used many of the classes. One in particular is the evangelism class. After going through the course, I was able to transform by God's grace the whole method and the and the whole process of the Bible study where it is more evangelistic and we're able to actually reach out to people and then actually study the Bible together. It's something so simple, but man, it's it's because of LFBI that that changed. Now now we're able to plug that into an evangelistic ministry that we have out of our church. So I couldn't recommend LFBI more. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org slash support. And that family component is, is, is a hard thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So for me personally, when I went to El Salvador as a missionary, I was, I was single, hadn't been married, no kids, and it was easy. And there were components about that that were, you know, uh, a bit dangerous. Uh, it, it would had been recently in civil war and still some unrest, but I never thought twice uh, about my own life. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd, I'd given that over to the Lord. But when we were preparing to go to Pakistan, I, I had to wrestle a lot with the idea of, of taking a wife and children. We had mm -hmm. two kids by then and I was married. And, and uh, you know, God had to work me through this idea of, can I trust him with, with, with what I wrongly thought is my kids, my wife, right? right? And really turn them over to him. Because Satan, you know, he's... He doesn't fight fair. He's after anything he can do to get people away. So that that still commonly happens in in this community. So when I lived in Pakistan, for example, a guy who who lived just outside of our hospital, he he came to Christ and started coming, you know, to get discipled. And then the community found out about it. They uh, took his business away from him at first, uh, and he and he continued to follow the Lord. And then one day they came and they took his wife and his kids from him. And said, we're going to give them your wife to another man. If you're a Christian, you're not fit to be a husband to a Muslim woman or even in this country. And at that, um, that pressure was enough that he recanted his faith in Christ. Mm. And he now lives, you know, a, 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 a very miserable Muslim life. That's uh, hard. That's so yeah. hard to think about. Yeah. But even you, you know, as a missionary in uh, Pakistan, there mm -hmm. were moments where you faced potential mob threat. I mean, yeah. The fact that you were American and, um, you know, 
there was some privilege. There was probably some trepidation mm -hmm. from the locals, but there were moments where you felt like you were under serious threat too because of your faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, there were. You want to hear more about that? Why not? Why not? Yeah, okay. Uh, so, the, you know, there was one in particular, and this is largely, um, in hindsight, was was my foolishness, my error uh, of being overzealous and not and not harmless as a dove, uh, you know, I've, and definitely not wise either. Uh, just uh, I'm, So I'm underground, literally, in this little... I don't know. It's like an alley that they, it's a tunnel that they dug underground, but then there were entrances to a couple shops and, and I met some men and I'm, and I'm talking to them about religion and I'm sitting and my back is against the wall. And now I've got this semicircle of five guys around me and, and we're talking about uh, the gospel. And, you know, I, I pointed out uh, an inconsistency with the Islamic uh, idea uh, of Allah. And, and I just walked him down this logical road that says Allah cannot be God because of this problem. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you're you know, winning, I just, I just laid over. this out. Yeah. Like it's so clear a to B to C Christian. Yeah. Like they're all about to get saved. Right. Um, but in, but in reality, uh, they're just getting angrier and angrier at the fact that I'm insulting, you know, their God and the, at the things I'm saying. They they have no ability, you know, to see the logical point that I'd made. I, and I was, you know, I was I was way off on on the uh, on on timers of like the importance of what I was arguing, mm -hmm. and it got bad. Uh, I thought there was a moment where I thought I'm probably. I might not see daylight again. Like these guys are are going to get really angry, and I'm I'm going to have to try to fight through one to get up at least to the street level where there's mm. where there's daylight in the crowd. But that wouldn't help because I also I I witnessed with my own eyes, uh, you know, guys chasing a man down the street, and and then you know the mob just kind of joins in, and they just they don't even have any context. No, they just jump in and join the mob, and when they catch him, they beat him. So I thought, wow. well, getting out to the street won't help. Then it's me versus a hundred. Man. <laughs> like it's not good odds anywhere except the Lord is with me. But the, yeah, God was gracious and, and walked me out of that. So. so all of that in mind, this, you know, that information just further makes Qureshi this enigma. Yeah. I mean, he is an, an incredibly strange, and maybe it was the moment in time too, mm -hmm. where things in, you know, Pakistan wasn't a country yet. They weren't so entrenched. Mm -hmm. They weren't, they weren't so um, antagonistic maybe, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, he had quite an influence uh, on the community. Yeah. Explain to us before we get into his legacy and, and, and his overall impact, how did he get this name, the peanut butter man? We haven't explained that yet. Okay. How did he get this name yeah. and, and how did it uh, give him an even greater foothold in the community as a yeah. whole? Well? Similar to the story I just told about the guy outside our wall losing his business. So mm -hmm. once Qureshi became uh, a Christian, uh, so the, the Muslim community not only said you can't buy, but they wouldn't buy from him. So his business dries up. Mm -hmm. He did a couple of things. He'd made these these relishes and pickles and and uh, they wouldn't buy from him. He had a candy shop. Nobody would buy from him. He was also a, a journalist. So he would travel around mm -hmm. and, and write articles, but that too dried up once you become a Christian. So one day, one of the missionaries had come, and, and they were doing Bible study, and they were having tea together. And and yeah, the missionary um, pulls out peanut butter, puts it on the stuff, and, and Qureshi is like, this stuff is amazing. How do you make it? And, yeah. and the missionary had peanuts with him, and um, Qureshi had a meat grinder, so they grind up the peanuts, and he shows them how to make it. And he's like, this is, this is incredible. So he starts his own business. 
And uh, initially, his the only people he was selling to were was the missionary and expat community. Mm-hmm. By this time, we have we have Pakistan as a nation, so we're into the nineteen, uh, you know, probably sixties, seventies. Uh, it's been a couple of decades of Pakistan, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he learns how to make peanut butter. He starts this business. Um, he, he's selling to the Christians and then he gets connected to some different communities around. And, and actually, uh, even the foreigners are saying, this is the best peanut butter we've ever had. This is better than what they mass produce in America Hmm. or the UK. You know, it was a, a little bit of his, his personality, his willingness to take risks and kind of get out there and like try to start this business. Maybe a side note to make here too about um, missionaries and their impact on on communities and the people they reach. One thing that never happened uh, is the missionaries never gave any uh, money to Qureshi. You know, even as he was suffering, even as he didn't have uh, the things that he needed, the missionaries weren't the ones to come and bail him out. Because a lot of times, what will happen is uh, converts will be. You know the 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 community will look at the converts as really just taking money, like they're they're just pretending a, to be a Christian in order to get the exploitation advice. The yeah, yeah. Right. they're try, they're trying to yeah. make, cuddle up and get cozy with the Christians so that there can be some sort of residual benefit. To right. Them. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's there were you know the missionaries at the time were very wise to not to not give and give and give a bunch, you know, mm-hmm. and we've seen the damage that can happen when we when we overgive and we overinvest uh, financially. So mm-hmm. all they did was invest the word and and teach him to to stand on on the word and on the Lord. So so anyway, he starts the the peanut butter business and uh, it grows. Like it becomes a big deal across Pakistan. Uh, they couldn't resist. They couldn't resist. There was, there was no, you know, it wasn't like the candy shop. It wasn't like the pickles. They couldn't resist the peanut butter. All of them bought in. Yeah. And, and Pakistanis started loving it. Like it's, <laughs> they're way up in the north. It's all the way down in the south. They're selling it in Karachi. It's all over the place. So yeah, it took off. And so he became known, you know, it started among the, the missionary community as the peanut butter man. So even when we lived there, it was hard to get peanut butter, you know, so, mm. you know, back, back then, peanut butter was almost impossible to find. So you wanted peanut butter, you went to the peanut butter man. That's great. And uh, yeah, so he took care of the missionaries. So he he builds a business and mm-hmm. God provides for him that way. And and so, you know, the season of, of you know, difficulty where he couldn't provide for his family and now he's coming out of that. Mm-hmm. But, but nonetheless, he still has a work to do. Mm-hmm. And so tell us a little bit about his legacy in terms of his evangelism and the impact overall on Pakistan long-term. Yeah. So he, he does, you know, when he was, um, doing, doing his, uh, his writing, he would travel to different cities and look at stories. And so he, he was, and because of his role as an imam, he was known all over the place. Um, once he became a Christian, he took advantage of that too. One of the big things that he would do is he would go and he would visit the persecuted being persecuted himself and and just trusting God and living through it, he he would find out that there were Christians that are being persecuted or Christians in jail in different places, and he would go and minister to them. So oftentimes he would show up uh, at the prisons and be the one, you know, taking food and and taking mm-hmm. scripture to the to the Pakistani Christians who are being persecuted or visiting the widows of uh, who who'd lost their husbands mm-hmm. due to um, the mobs. That, mm-hmm. that have come. So that was a big part of his ministry. Uh, he, he led people to the Lord. He was an evangelist and, and a discipler. Uh, he just took everything that he knew in scripture and would teach it to others. I think the, 
you know, from, from my perspective, um, in terms of my interactions in Pakistan, I would say his biggest, um, influence and legacy would be in his family. His children came to Christ and then his grandchildren came to Christ as well. And this is a huge thing because it is illegal to leave Islam because, you know, generational Christianity, um, it, coming out of Islam is, is difficult to find. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of times the next generation is right back into Islam. But Qureshi's grandson is a close friend of mine. He worked at the same hospital where I worked and uh, is is probably the boldest witness, uh, hmm. Pakistani, you know, uh, Christian witness that I ever met. Wow. Uh, loves the scripture. Uh, you could tell he's got, he got it from his grandfather. And uh, yeah, he's, you know, he's seeing patients every day and, and leading Muslims to Christ. So, yeah. That, that's uh, that's a really cool testimony. And like you mentioned, conversion being illegal. Mm -hmm. um, the, the church in Pakistan um, is small mm -hmm. and it is dying off. Mm -hmm. So all of the Christian converts that came from, from Qureshi's generation are passing away. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so with that, the, the churches there are beginning to, to dry up and mm -hmm. pass away as well. And so it requires, it's going to require another Qureshi. It's going to require yeah. another peanut butter man to kind of break through. And there may be, there may need to be many men and women that take those kinds of stands in mm -hmm. order for Christianity to be exposed. Yeah, that's very true. So one thing that Qureshi began to notice uh, after he became a Christian, I mentioned he started evangelizing the Muslims. He started interacting with a Christian community and found that most Christians weren't saved. And this too is just kind of a brilliant plan of Satan uh, where you have, um, you know, familial um, religion or religion that dominates both family life and secular life and government and, and everything else. It just becomes so ingrained that it gets passed on generation to generation. That's mm -hmm. how Islam works. Yeah. But that's how Christianity works in that area too. Mm. So he would meet Christians who had never heard the gospel who had no idea of a new birth. They are Christian because their parents are Christian. And so you pass on Christianity simply by birth. So he started evangelizing the Christians as well because mm -hmm. yeah, it was it was drying up. Um, he, so he's leading everybody to the Lord. You know, there are were, there were stories, one of the guys that I worked with in Pakistan, one more, one more story before we end. Uh, sometimes this guy would come down to the hospital where I was mm. uh, and he, you know, even after he got saved, he, he dressed, I don't know if you can see that, he dressed like traditionally, he looked like a Muslim. He wore the, you know, the, the turban and everything else. And he still kept a big beard. And visually, you'd think he's a Muslim. Right. He would come into the hospital. And, uh, you know, my boss, uh, an American missionary, knew him and, and, and was discipling him and was, you know, uh, teaching him scripture. And Kreshi would come in and Luke would come out of the, the operating theater and they'd meet in the hallway. And Kreshi would start yelling. He's a, he's a big man. He's a loud man. And he would start yelling at, at Luke. Like uh, he would, it, it was this mock fight. He would come in and do this bit where he would start a, uh, an argument in public with Luke. And mm -hmm. so Luke, the, the Christian missionary would respond back and they would get this dialogue going. And like all of the Muslims would rally and think this is our guy, like, cause right. he looks like a Muslim and he would, he would use the Quran. And then, you know, as, as they get a big enough crowd, then Qureshi would turn it and start using the Quran and, and the scriptures. And he would start preaching the gospel to, to, to Luke, you know, it's it kind of this, this, they had a bit. This bit that they would do, but man, wow. you loved it. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah.
That's cool. Yeah. Um, so you already mentioned the book. You held it up here a second ago, but but tell us about this book by Russ Irwin that you yeah. read uh, about his life. Yeah. So uh, here it is again. This book, in a lot of ways, it's like um, um, Brother Andrew's book, God Smuggler. Mm-hmm. You know, you read through it and you hear just this this non traditional missionary, but impacting. Uh, many people, you hear about supernatural works, how God is is blinding the eyes of people and just doing all kinds of those types of works. Uh, and you hear about a man who uh, has given his life completely to what he believed that God had led him to do. In Brother Andrew's case, it's Bible smuggling. In his case, it's just evangelize everyone that you come in contact with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a simple read. Uh, you know, it's, it, it walks through his life. There's a lot more detail of his life in there. Uh, you know, later in his life, there's more struggles. Ultimately, he ends up dying in a motorcycle wreck uh, in 1999. So, you know, he's been gone for 20 years now. Um, but a book that I would recommend that everybody read, I think it'll encourage everybody's faith. Yeah. James, thank you for talking to us about the peanut butter man today. Yeah. Uh, it's been a, a good and encouraging conversation. I'm, I'm thankful every time you come on and do this with us. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. It's been great. And we want to thank you as well for listening in and, and hearing about Qureshi and his life. Uh, hopefully it was encouraging to you and, and, and causes you to think about what you're willing to sacrifice for the gospel's sake. Um, a lot of us are afraid, you know, we're afraid of our neighbors or our coworkers or what people might think of us. Uh, but when we look at the peanut butter man's life, uh, we recognize a boldness that is very, very rare in our world, whether you're in Pakistan or India or even right in uh, middle America. So, we should be challenged to consider what we're willing to give up and, and are we willing to, to throw away our reputation for the sake of Christ's fame? And so uh, hear that message in today's episode. If you're curious about missions, if uh, you have the heartbeat of missions, if you want to live the Great Commission and, and you want to learn how, according to God's word, we want to encourage that you take our missions courses at LFBI. And if you visit LFBI.org and, and see our program of study, you'll see that we offer several different tiers of missions classes that begin with introductory classes and basically uh, the Bible's philosophy and view on reaching the world, all the way to the details of what it looks like to church plants or, or to support the work of missions in your local church uh, and with uh, with teams going into the world to preach the gospel. And so if that interests you at all, please visit lfbi.org and learn more about that. But with all of that said, we love you. We're grateful for you. And we can't wait to be with you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.